Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host... McGill. But then, for the first time ever, we've got a guest. It's an exciting day, uh, Compare and Campaign. We have got our guest, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Wait, I'm your very first guest ever? <laughs> You're right. our first guest on the podcast. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. How crazy is that? I had no idea. Yeah, I'm Lucayo. Lucayo Bit On or Lucayo Australia. Yeah, see? Yeah, I, I don't think I could uh, pronounce all that that you just said. Because I don't know what it, uh, I don't know what you just said. <laughs> but this is what's exciting about having new people on the podcast. Um,. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. I should say that we are recording on the 25th of September, 2023. And, uh, yeah, uh, it is episode 163, I believe. Is that right, McGill? I think that's right. That's right. And uh, as you go through your spiel, the the surprise that this is our first guest just get, gets even more like loud in my ears. I'm like, oh, yeah. Over 150 episodes, we've never had a guest on this show. <laughs> I think we've talked about it, and I don't think it's ever happened. I mean, I've been emailing Kevin Simbita for a long time, but he never gets oh, back to yeah. me. Oh, yeah. Do you know that guy, uh, Lucio? No, I don't know. Who's Kevin Simbita? It's the guy who made riffs. Oh. If he ever comes on this podcast, we're going to get an earful, because all we do is make fun of his games. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> I do recall Mainly. the mentioning of riffs as the reason that McGill might have been seen as a Satanist. So, oh, yeah, yeah that's true. your teacher caught you up to no good with that riffs. Up to no good. I had a riffs book in my backpack in art class. I call that up to no good. Have you seen those pictures? Those those wacky teenage fantasy pictures they put all in those books. Like a guy with tattoos. <laughs> oh no, shocking. <laughs> I know, right? Well, this is a guy, we've, we've talked about this, but uh, there's a class in Rifts that uh, like gets powers from their tattoos, which you think is like a cool idea, except that then the art that they have included is just a guy who's like sort of covered in like high school notebook doodles. It looks like, it like... Looks like a kid who got their hands on a, a sheet of temporary tattoos and just stuck them all over their body. <laughs> I absolutely have to Google Riff's covers now. What is this? Oh, wow. <laughs> Even when Man, we have the... someone on our show to talk about their game, we're getting sidetracked by Palladium once again. <laughs> Yeah, that that OG Rift cover with the the booby ladies and the tentacle monster is uh, really something. It really sets <laughs> really... the stage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but enough about riffs. We're not here to talk about riffs. We're here to talk with our guest about their game, which we've been talking about a little bit on the podcast over the past couple episodes. We've been talking about the gates. And Lucio, you created the gates. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. This is my first game that I've created. The first game. And do you have, you are working on another game. Is that correct? Yeah. Called Hawak, uh, which is, yeah. <laughs> I ran a test. Do you, have, 
yeah do you have other games or is is this your your, your two so far um i mean i've done f- like stuff for people's birthdays before like i i ran i made like a doctor who social larp once for an ex of mine nice. and i barely remember what the rules are um <laughs> But they all had little cards, and so you could just hang out at the party, or I could give you a Doctor Who card, and you had to find... It was based on one of the episodes. Wow, that was, like, seven years ago. So, um, yeah, my ex at the time was a huge Doctor Who fan, and so I thought, wow, well, and a gamer. So that was one of the games, but... And I don't remember what the rules I based it on were... Um, and then I've, I've done stuff like made a game using the cipher system or a mix of, uh, like city of mist and world of darkness. Like I like mishmashing mechanics based on certain stuff where this is the first time where I'm like, I'm going to make a new system though. It is, as you pointed out, based on nobilis or nobilis or however Latin is pronounced. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is really interesting because I just have, I, like, what a treat to have someone who is designing their own game systems from the ground up. I mean, Tom uh, sort of tinkers with, uh, like, adapting Blades in the Dark, doing, like, Forged in the Dark style games or, you know, playing a lot of D&D 5e. But uh, The Gates has been, like, very sort of new and different to us. We t- I, I do a whole segment on this show where I talk about different... RPG systems and give like overviews and stuff and we've covered you know some of the big ones and some of the silly ones but uh, the gates has really stood out to me as being different from the rest for a lot of reasons so I'm just so curious to to pick your brain and hear more about it um, if I may if I may jump in I just wanted to say that it's also notable that so the gates in the references you have um nobilis is listed and city of mist is listed and those are both games that we covered in mcgill's side of the podcast previously so we had a bit of uh, a bit of lead up with some of the inspirations i think yeah uh, we've definitely like laid the groundwork here to to cover the gates because we have definitely talked about city of mist and nobilis and and have a sort of an ongoing much like rifts an ongoing topic of conversation on this show is world of darkness as well yeah, World of Darkness, uh, problematic phase. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah very yeah. true. And my favorite World of Darkness game is like the one of the most problematic out of all of them, so I like totally get it. Which oh, one is Oh, no, that? can we is guess? That... Can we guess? <laughs> go for it, oh, go man, for it. I... Does McGill want to try and guess? Beast? Beast the Primordial? Wow, wow, the first shot, first shot hmm. got, got, me, got me in the heart. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I love Beast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that was the one that Tom and I both identified as the most problematic of all of them. So, I mean, I I think it's certainly it's got a a sort of storied history is the yeah. thing, and so it's hard to get away from it. It's like it's something where you it comes up in Google is like beast controversy. Anytime you can type in a role playing <laughs> game and then controversy comes up, you're like, yeah, okay, we're in for something. And it sucks because, like, I read the Kickstarter PDF before I think 
I found out anything about the controversy and I was just so enamored by the idea of like being possessed by a nightmare and being able to be a nightmare creature and then I'm like oh great and it was written by a dick (laughs) (laughs) that'll happen (sighs) Uh, I had a lot of beast uh, but uh, can you give us some background just on your experience with RPGs like did you start with World of Darkness was that your introduction to the world of role-playing games or was it D&D like it was for a lot of us yeah mine was Rifts (laughs) that's pretty clear (laughs) yeah mine was uh, D&D 2.5 when I was 13, I think. Yeah. Um, my brother and his friends had our first D&D group. They're in grade seven. I was in grade eight. Um, and uh, I was a half-elven bard, which, as you recall, bards don't do shit in 2.5. Can I swear yeah. on this podcast? Oops. Anyway, yeah, I hear you swear you all the time. Yeah, do it up. Yeah, so <laughs> basically I would just show up with my acoustic guitar to sessions and then um, just make fun of the other players by making songs about them on the spot, which is classic bard shenanigans. And that's how I started. Um, yeah, and then I didn't get introduced to World of Darkness until university actually so i played dnd all through middle school and then we had a dnd group in high school which is hilarious because i went to a catholic grade school and a catholic high school um in tirana i also went to catholic <laughs> schooling <laughs> did you have your own dnd group tom at school not really but you know when i was in high school i was all about vampire right oh it was all about the vampire. I would have loved to play vampire in high school. By D&D group in high school, it was an official D&D club that was led by a teacher who hilariously was named Mr. Church. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I just remember in grade nine being like, so I want to be part demon blood, part celestial blood, raised by dragons, controlling time. <laughs> And Mr. Church was like, "You want you wanted to play uh, Dungeons the Dragoning uh, Forty Thousand, <laughs> uh, Mary Sue Munchkin edition." And uh, he, he was just like, "All right, here's a level one sorcerer." <laughs> Got to start somewhere. I was like, "Thanks, Mr. Church." <laughs> he was like, "This is where you start. The rest could be in a backstory that everyone can find out because I'm sure you'll talk about it every session." <laughs> I was like, "Wow." How this this man has been playing Dungeons and Dragons probably longer than I've been alive that he already clocked me so fast. Um, <laughs> um Yeah, so I it was just D D for a long time and it was in university when I just got introduced to a whole lot of other types of games, um, mutants and masterminds, um and I think Yeah, that's when I got introduced to Nobilis. I think I got kicked out of the Nobilis game. Um. <laughs> how how do you get kicked out of a Nobilis game? That's that's interesting to me. The seed is already in the fact that I like Beast the Primordial. Then you can tell. Oh, okay. My 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 character was the <laughs> was the embodiment of monsters. Um, didn't all of the above yeah it didn't get a <laughs> i didn't get along well with the other players because i kept derailing the plot by uh being monstrous and so yeah the jared leto method acting 
edge lord school of uh game playing <laughs> i've grown out of that so i'm really proud of myself uh in my story arc as you could tell by the games i play it's like uh, or create it's i really emphasis on like cooperative gaming and not being a little edgelord um yeah so what a story arc i've gone through and still i have a special space in my heart for beast <laughs> the, the it's interesting you say um you mentioned the thing about bringing your acoustic guitar to being a bard because that uh it it seems to speak to something which is like you take a very you seem to take a very um man what's the word literal it's like it's like you yourself it's like you you bring a bit of larp to every game it seems like yeah is that fair to say i think so i mean my first larp was vampire and it was definitely just like here's me <laughs> here here's the clothes <laughs> i already wear but now i'm putting a mask on cuz i'm a nosferatu you know <laughs> like <laughs> a mask that I already I own <laughs> that I have used just for regular life. Um, oh, this I just have. I just have this lying around. Have you ever shown up to a session and the the GM's been like, "Wow, you came in costume," and you're just like, "This is just how I dress." <laughs> yes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even the D and D game I'm in right now, I'm playing like a crocodilian dragonborn. I show up in every session in crocodile scale makeup. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, that's awesome! I like this is a big commitment. Yeah, I do the scales different every time. Like, I'm always looking for a different type of way to do the makeup to be like, does this look good? Small scales, larger scales. Anyway, I um, I I also like LARPing, but it's difficult because of the. I guess the disabilities that I have now that it's hard for me to just go to a LARP where it's just running around places. I'm like, can you, is there a place I can, is it even enough for my mobility scooter or for my rollator or walker? Can I rest often? And I'm like, I love makeup and clothes. So I'll just bring that to every tabletop and pretend I'm LARPing. Yeah. I think that's fair too. For me, I like, I, I think I can only really bring myself to, get that sort of energy out for like the table and stuff i don't know if i can mm. go all the way and like fully costume up but like i love to you know do a little bit of of a visual flourish if i'm going to be at the table for a certain character if i'm playing lovecraft or i chan i put little bows in my hair that sort of thing do you, do you uh it sounds like you play more often than you run games is that the case yeah i well wow so <laughs> My brother will remember this because he lived with me from 13 to 18, where I worked on this huge D&D campaign that I never got to run because I was like, this isn't good enough. I did like tens of maps. I invented languages. I created... <laughs> I created races. Wow. I made my own setting, but with the D&D mechanics. And I had like... And I had even convinced one of my art teachers in high school if I could submit this for a credit. And he was like, sure, if you could ever finish it. And that doomed me. I did not finish it. Oh, no. <laughs> and, then I, and then I also had out of control. I had like um, a novel series spinoff to explain more of the universe for people. If they <laughs> And it was like going on 100 pages. Still hadn't finished the last few chapters. Um, and then I was like, I have to let this go. Like, I'm never going to be able to run a game if I think I have to fully, deeply, like, if I spend 
10 years on world building. I just have to sketch something out um, and just do it. And so I think I was really proud of the gates because I, a part of so many of the world building, as you already noticed, is just based on like the animist pagan belief system that I'm already a part of so that I didn't have to recreate races from nothing um, and whole languages and be a tiny JR token. So yeah, I spended a lot of time playing because I was also like learning people's different DM styles and being inspired by it, but then putting a lot of pressure on myself to be like, okay, well, I want to incorporate this and that and this and all right. There was like, this dude has like a binder of any side quests that could be like, if you, <laughs> there's a little Easter egg that you find in the tavern in the bathroom, then it opens up this whole side quest. I want to do that too. And it was, it was overwhelming. So uh, I didn't run my first game till I was 30 years old. Yeah. Well, that was for my say, birthday. Like, everything you're describing <laughs> is actually extremely relatable. <laughs> yeah. At least to me. Like, man, yeah, over-engineering, like wanting to design a whole setting and system and lore and elaborate history from nothing and then getting like lost in the weeds as you try to get that together. I totally relate to that. I've probably done that more than once. Uh, in my lifetime and yeah just, just all of that uh, that you were saying i was like wow yeah i i know what that's like yeah yeah i at this point the things that the games that i run usually will have will be based on another fandom or have like pre-existing lore so for my birthday last year i did um, something that was based on the Magnus Archives and the SCP Foundation. And then I just homebrewed together World of Darkness and City of Mist as the mechanics. And then it was a one-shot, so I made sure that the plot was really simple. <laughs> um, Man, I, I gotta yeah. say, I there's a lot of appeal for me in the idea of World of Darkness SCP. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> And then, and then the cipher system just came out like last month being like, we are releasing a Magnus Archives book. And I was like, oh, I'm like, well, that's fine. I'll just redo another game, but with the cipher system Magnus Archives book now, <laughs> instead of having to homebrew something with City of Mist and WOD. Everybody's so psyched about this Magnus Archives Kickstarter. Even my, even my new therapist is talking about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I want I, that I'm therapist. I'm over here. I hadn't even heard of it. I got to look this up. Oh man. Um so did we want to get on to talking about the games? Yeah. yeah. Or was there more you wanted to ask uh, ahead of time, McGill? No, no. My my questions now pertain to the gates. I'm very interested in this. Yeah. All right. Do you have a do you have a first question about the gates to start us off, Miguel? Uh, more a remark because like... Luca uh, earlier, uh, I mean, Tom pointed it out that you tend to bring like something of yourself to all the games that you play. Like you, you, Luca, yo, are are kind of inhabiting these characters in a, a more direct way, I guess, if that's the way to say it. But all of that to say, Tom and I noticed that the midsole. Yeah, uh, in in the the rules of the gates, it says the midsole is the body they are used to in their world, the body that is sitting with the other questers' bodies at the gates, and that was one of the things that really stood out to me and Tom as we were reading through the rules, going like, okay, so like like me, McGill, 
I'm my own midsole, right? Is that how it's supposed to be interpreted? Yeah. Like the, the midsoles yeah, yeah, yeah. are the, the literal players of the game. And then the, uh, the undersole and the upper sole sort of grow out of the players themselves. Like the, the idea of the undersole uh, having a connection to the ancestry of the player. Like that's, this is where Tom and I were going like, okay, so like, you know, are, are we talking about, you know, is me McGill, I, I am the midsole McGill and the undersole in the game, like, does that, is it supposed to pertain literally to my McGill's ancestors? I would love is to see a Neanderthal undersole. It would be so yeah. great with a giant club. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But yes, yeah. I think, I mean, so a little bit about my background is that um, the the top three things about me usually is that I am a pagan animist spiritualist. That's number one. Number two, I'm like hard left politically active. And number three, Games, 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 uh, and how, <laughs> but part of how I understand games, not just for fun of it, but I also have like a therapy background, which it's, has started to also be clear to y'all, um, in <laughs> trying to read through and understand the mechanics of the game. Um, and so I studied a lot around, uh, trauma therapy and trauma healing in, um, and not just like Western medical models, but also, like uh, indigenous, non-Western. Um, my background is of the Beagle people, which is a southeastern Luzon ethnicity or nation in what's colonially called the Philippines. And so I was born there and I was raised in Toronto and Canada. And so my influence around how, I guess, like how souls are seen within my culture, even though I was raised Catholic and then returned to more indigenous ways of knowing and um working with more indigenous elders afterwards and being like, I'm going through this whole journey around my ancestry, my heritage, uh, my understanding of spirituality. How do I gamify that from others? How do I bamboozle people into becoming witches? No, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) there, Oh, (laughs) I mean, Tom was, Tom spotted. It was pretty clear. This is a mystical experience, you know, um, that, that is, um, influenced by role-playing games. And so you could look at it like a mystical experience, or you can look at it as a game that mimics a mystical experience. Either way, it's I still think that people can get a lot out of it, even if they're not an animist or um, don't have mystical experiences in the first place. I'm really jazzed to hear this because it means <laughs> that Tom and I did sort of correctly identify some of these things about how, you know, an aspect of the gates is trauma therapy and group therapy and then another facet of it does have to do with spirituality and you know uh, magic and things like that so it's it's nice to have those suspicions confirmed and know that I wasn't just completely flailing around not knowing what I was talking about yeah and yeah I I um just wanted to say uh well it's funny it's it's funny because so the the main thing I wanted to say was that I think the theme that really for me at least comes across throughout the 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 gates is the theme of healing Mm. the idea that at its core it is a game about healing and um it's funny because i was mentioning how like when i was in high school 
I was really into vampire, but like, you know, when I, when I was in high school, my main thing was that I was in group therapy. That was my social group. <laughs> so vampire was just like, if I could have played vampire with my, with my group therapy, that would have been the best. That would have been the ultimate choice situation. Um, and that's like but so yeah. relatable because there's now people are offering RPG therapy classes and courses and releasing books on like how role playing games should be used in group therapy and are healing. So I feel like I was a little bit ahead of my time, but also being like, should I take some of these courses? But I'm I'm not sure if being a therapist is for me. I'm I feel a lot better being a professional dungeon master than I am being a professional therapist to yeah, be honest. Um, yeah. but even the games that I run for my work cuz I work at a community center for 2S LGBTQ people, there's still a therapeutic bent to the to the RPG nights that I offer for our clients just because of how I'm so influenced by being like Games should be healing. It's like, if you want to kill all of your intrusive thoughts as demons, we can do that. And it's a game about killing. But really, isn't it just about healing? You know? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting thing with Vampire, where I think that Vampire was a, a kind of uh, existential exercise for me where, like, I was going through a lot of stuff involving, like, suicide and stuff, mm. but then as a vampire, it's like, you're already dead. What are you going to do, kill yourself again? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's not a satisfying narrative. <laughs> and, like, just, like, confronting myself real. with, like, that existential crisis through that. That's, uh, yeah, that's one way it could have helped me. I'm not sure it did. Didn't get to play that much. <laughs> the interesting thing about Vampire for me and then how it relates to the way that I wrote Gates and everything is that when I was introduced to it in uh, undergrad, um, it was just like a dude from my class. We were already in a <laughs> all all the D&D nerds found each other <laughs> immediately in first year. And we were we started a D&D group. But one of the guys was like, hey, have you ever played World of Darkness? You're a huge goth. You're like the only goth in our class. And I was like, what? A goth D&D? And he was just like, okay, I'm going to run a game for you. It's called Vampire the Masquerade. I'm like, I watched that television show in middle school. Oh my God, and he, call back to the television I was like, show. I didn't even know there was a game about it. He's like, the, the, the show's based on the game, Lucayo. And I was like, what? And he was like, all right, so I'm going to make this easy for you. The character is based on you going to <laughs> to Carleton University for your bachelor's. And then one day you're approached by a being at night. And that's how the story started. And he walked me through World of Darkness with me playing as me, being approached by different vampires, being asked to be turned. And I had to choose between like, Okay, do I think I was like I'm really into this Asimite, but <laughs> I don't like this Lasombra, and I don't like. Um, maybe I also liked Bruja, but yeah, um, yeah, and that's how I started Vampire. Was literally playing a character that was based on me at the time, 18 years old, just left home, moved to Ottawa, started university. Um, yeah. And it was, it was, I think, really game-changing in that I learned a lot about myself as whether, like, because 
I had never played myself in a game as me and was like, do I as hmm. me actually want to live forever and drink the blood of other, of human beings? Um, and it was and the game became a lot of existential questions are like, if I was going to do this, it had to be worth it somehow. Like how I just don't want immortality for immortality's sake. And so I learned a lot about myself and having to grapple with these vampires that my buddy would throw at me, um, trying to seduce me into the masquerade. And also there was like folks from, what were they called again? Anyways, the opposing side, the opposite of the Camarilla was also trying to get me on their side. Oh, the, the Sabat. The Sabat was also trying to Would have got me. me in like two seconds. <laughs> it would have been easy. <laughs> this, this is what happened with your game that I'm in, is you like introduce the trespassers and then like quietly I'm like, you know, it's a good thing I'm not playing myself because I would have been a trespasser <laughs> before you could blink. <laughs> Definitely, when uh, I ran that game before, that came before, someone tried to. Someone tried to join, and I, I figured out a, a narrative loophole to stop them. But it became this this plot arc where this one person in the team kept being seduced to the trespasser side. And then the other players, to their credit, kept just showering them with love and care and support. Um, and it kept bringing them back into the team. So that was really cute. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. That's uh, that's fascinating. It's it's funny. Like we're getting into the whole, the existential. Uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, repercussions of vampire and whatnot. All the all that sort of comes with that. But the one that I really grapple with is mage because once you, <laughs> once you face me with the question of what if you could do anything, <laughs> that's where I start to go like uh, I don't know. <laughs> And I embrace the great nothing. Ah, easy. Um, yeah, easy. It's already there. Didn't have to make a choice. Um, yeah. So, uh, one thing. I mean, one thing you had mentioned, uh, Lakayo, before we did the, before we start recording this, you you had a few things you wanted to address. One of the things was. You are a fan of Cloud Atlas, but you haven't read the book. Yeah. Want to shout out that. I'm one of the oh, annoying wow, okay. people where, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I was like, wow, McGill clocked me hard. Like, I love. <laughs> Apparently. I, I love the Wachowskis and I'm re the my problematic fave, the Wachowski sisters um, <laughs> and the problematic movie Cloud Atlas. It's yeah. like. <laughs> yeah so wow i definitely other people of color took me aside to be like buddy why do you keep going on about this movie <laughs> and i was like look i believe in reincarnation i believe <laughs> so much of the experiences in the movie i resonate with but i mean i was a huge fan of sensate i was a huge fan of the matrix and I currently still am so much of Everything that I talked about in high school was Matrix this and Matrix that. I brought it into my activism and was like, consider oppressive systems as the Matrix. And we as activists are trying to undo, undo oppression. And that's still in the gates too. So it's it's constantly the the ideas that they that they share. And I I acknowledge this in the in the how I talk about with other like racialized activists as well is the palatable version to folks who are not aware of quote unquote Eastern concepts like 
reincarnate. There was like so much Buddhism. There was so much Taoism in the Matrix and in Cloud Atlas. And so it's it's clearly a thing that really attracts the Wachowskis and in Sensate as well. Just like the the way the barriers between people are actually really thin and that what is illusion and what is reality and how are we actually interconnected, which is also like another concept in a lot of I don't want to be pan-indigenous, but like in a lot of non-Western, probably mostly indigenous cultures around like the web of relations and our deep connection with things that are animist and not just other people. Um, and that they were able to really showcase that in these movies and shows in a way that makes sense to people that were raised in North America. Um, and that's why... They're my problematic faves because that's it's a reference point that then I can use when I try to explain what's going on in my like kaleidoscopic screaming brain of weirdness. Be like, yeah, just like Sensei, um, just like in Cloud Atlas, you know. Yeah, do you know? Uh, do you know the Invisibles? I love the. Of course, I know the. I'm obsessed. <laughs> okay. You clocked okay. me I'm again. Just making sure. Yes. I was just about to be like, yeah. So that's my my point of reference. Also, <laughs> mine. Love the Invisibles, and like the thing about the Invisibles too is that like, I was. <laughs> uh, Wow, you're gonna lose a lot of your right wing <laughs> libertarian. Oh, we already yeah, kicked yeah, them out we, a couple episodes already, ago, um, as I recall. Yeah. But I had I had also studied under like a chaos mage sorcerer, so a lot of the tenets in the Invisibles comics is based on the chaos magic movement from the '80s, which was like this punk rock movement where they were pushing against like um, a lot of the ceremonial magic from like Aleister Crowley's time in the 1920s and it's like these secret societies that were like rife with like power dynamics and abuse and a bunch of these like punk rock aesthetic like mage dudes in the 80s were like why don't we just figure out mathematically how magic works and then apply it to everything and have everybody be able to access it and fucking do it and then they and then this and then influenced by these guys wrote their weird ass um, comic books that were my some of my favorites besides the classic goth comic books. I liked like Lenore and Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. <laughs> I read a lot of the Invincibles and a lot of Alan Moore. And it was just it's also pretty clear um, and how I move about the world and like, yeah, this makes sense. They got it. It's Grant Morrison wrote The Invisibles. Garth Ennis wrote Preacher, which I also enjoyed. And The Darkness worked on it, which I also enjoyed because they were both pretty gothy. But no, it's Grant oh, the Morrison. The Darkness, that's another callback for yeah. this show. <laughs> yeah. I love The Darkness. Garth I love me my teenage fantasy with giant phalluses. <laughs> Just let that one hang in the air. What if, what if my power was just two big snakes that came out of my back and impaled people. I mean, I... That wouldn't represent anything. I absolutely drew a character like that all through high school. <laughs> but yeah. but as, like, a, a hot girl with purple hair, and then she had, like, shadow things coming out of her back, and, like... Anyways, I really loved, like, Witchblade and the Darkness as well, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. We're talking about Grant Morrison here from Glasgow. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm gonna get on a huge tangent about, like, British comic writers if we keep on that, so, um, all that to say, uh, yeah, uh, The Invisibles, another clear point of reference, and, uh, one that is familiar to me. 
I think I don't know. I think that the Invisibles feels good because there's that uh, there's that vibe to it where it feels like you could go out and be an invisible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't feel restrictive like you got to have a visionary experience the way that some other uh, adventures do. Um, well, I mean, the Wachowskis have, uh, I guess, been accused of, you know, ripping off the Invisibles or at least using the Invisibles as a great source of inspiration. But I think that's why both properties like the Invisibles and uh, the Matrix appeal so much is that, as you said, Tom, like the idea is just like, hey, you normal person living your everyday life. What if you were secretly the chosen one and these these cool people in awesome outfits are going to show up in your life one day and just take you away from the mundane life and reveal to you that you can do magic or kung fu or whatever you want. I think that that's like a lot of the appeal of those properties. That's like the guide. Come and take me through the gates. Exactly. All right. (laughs) I managed to segue. Yeah, bringing it back. Um, So what's next? Well, I want to address when you're all like offerings. What's that about? <laughs> yeah, do we? Okay, look, do we? Do we need to throw our beer in the river? <laughs> you don't. You could also just like get a tea bag and bury it by a tree. Like it doesn't have to be that fancy, but it is trying to replicate what it means to be part of like a mystical experience. Like you put effort in and you get effort out. You know what I mean? I mean, this is the, it's great to just have that stated on the show like you just did, because I think the reason that I was confused and sort of grappling with how to understand the rules of the gates, uh, the reason is because it's not often that an RPG asks you to like really blur the line between here, the real world and the world of the game. And so when the gates rules were saying something like, you know, your ancestors, your ancestry factors into the undersoul, it had me going like, okay, but like me, me, or like my character, or do I, is the character me? And similarly, where it's like, you know, uh, place an offering in the circle or discard the offering, you know, bury it or discard it into a body of running water. I was like, like literally or metaphorically, I kept on sort of wondering that. And it's nice to have it say where it's like, no, like actually do that. You don't have to throw your beer in the river, as I've been joking, but like actually do that thing <laughs> because that's part of the experience. Like it it seems like there is a, a LARP aspect to the gates, even though it is not inherently a, a LARP game. Have I got that right? Yeah, and you could you could make it a LARP. I made it in a way where people with different like abilities or mobility or capacity could just hang around in a circle. And you could I mean you could also do it metaphorically cuz the the point of an offering isn't actually the physical offering in a lot of like pagan animist um circles. It's the intention behind it. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you are committing to something. And so and so if yeah. I had a bowl of sand and then i buried some skittles in the bowl of sand would that count if if your intention was like this skittles represents my commitment to this game as opposed to like i'm gonna throw skittles in a bowl of sand for no fucking reason you know no i'm gonna push them down and bury them it's gonna look cool i don't know for some reason that image got in my head well i have to compliment you on these key parts of the gates because um it sort of demands that you 
I, I was about to say take it seriously, but it's more like it demands that you at least respect the act of playing the game. Uh, you know, over the course of this podcast, Tom and I have talked about things that we run into where, you know, someone at your table isn't taking things seriously and they're just making snarky remarks the whole time. And I really appreciate how the there is an aspect to the gates where, you know, it says, like, when you're sitting in the circle, like, you're here in the game, you have to pay attention. And now finding out as well that this idea of the offering where it's like, what matters is that you're meaning it when you say it. Don't be, you know, don't be snarky. If you're playing this game, you actually have to play this game. I really appreciate that. And I remarked on a previous episode, too, that, like, the rule that when you're sitting in the circle, you are in the game I'd love to apply that to in-person D&D sessions where it's like, no, if you're at the table, you're playing the game. Excuse yourself if you want to go look at your phone or something, but when you're here, you have to be in it. Because I think that the the problem of player attention span and constant distraction is definitely one that is present in just a lot of people's home games. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that you're trying to avoid it. <laughs> Part of it is also... My name means clown, and I'm a real joker of a person, so I've got to make the games more serious than how I'm going to be, (laughs) I think, is, like, part of just me overcompensating, like, all of the characters are going to be goofy. I'm going to randomly sing songs in the middle of describing a terrifying scene. Um, And so I could still make things... I add a lot of music to like set pieces that I'm creating for a specific vibe so that my own jokey nature doesn't immediately undermine what I'm trying, the atmosphere I'm making. So I rely a lot on music and on ambient sounds. And thank God there's like a huge YouTube industry now of all these D and D ambient sound noisemakers. I just so heavily rely on that to make the atmosphere um, and to immerse people so that they're less likely to also just be distracted out of game and by my own weird clown nature. And I think I also give a little leeway where I like check in with people being like, do you need to be on your phone because you're neurospicy or have ADHD and you won't concentrate unless there's also something scrolling in your hand? Just give me a heads up so that I know and that everybody else knows so that we know that you're that the phone in your hand is your way of taking things seriously mm-hmm. as opposed to like um, not being with us in the game. So there's I we have a little discussion around like what are the best ways that you can access the table in the fullness of both having fun and in the way that we can all cooperate together and building this world together. Um, and some of some people will be like, I just need a fidget toy. I just need my phone. I just need one earbud or like noise canceling headphones. I can still hear you, but the, any kind of sounds outside of the room will be muted so that I don't get distracted. Like I try to make it as like disability friendly or access friendly as possible while still being like, this is ceremony time, and y'all know I'm a real fucking witch, so <laughs> I'm taking this seriously as much as I'm a clown. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it actually, it's something that, uh, some things that we just been talking about kind of jumped out at me is, like, because we had just been talking about the whole, um, the invisibles and chaos magic and stuff, it reminds me that this whole, um the whole sort of ritual space that you create for the gates um, 
is that something that is meant to be akin to like a banishing ritual as it appears in like chaos magic i wouldn't call it a or is it a different yeah thing? i wouldn't call it banishing i'd call it like an invocation ritual is in chaos magic i think we're gonna get a little bit into like my own game theory which is like very influenced by my teacher dare carasquillo um and uh and it's like an understanding that games and especially games of chance are a low stakes way where people can confront grief and joy in their life and tragedy and happiness because you're not really actually going through the loss of your character or like the loss of something tangible to you, like losing your job or losing a partner. Your character is losing their job, is losing their partner, has lost a comrade, has lost this fight. But it... Lost five HP. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, and so... Never get it back. Playing in these playing in these quote-unquote games are actually ways that through millennia, human beings have learned to deal with and build their resilience to trauma by learning how to cope and watching other people learn how to cope with loss and learning how to celebrate together with joy in these low-stakes scenarios. And so I'm always, that game theory is always in the back of my mind in creating games and in playing games. And I get really frustrated when I play games where we can't debrief afterwards about what happened with our characters and what's going on, because I think that's where there's a lot of growth for a player. And I have a hard time playing in games where we're just like, all right, it's done. We can fuck off and never talk about this again until next session where we just jump back into it. And I'm like, I'm not here leading double lives. I'm here understanding how this game impacts my own life because I, because we all put stuff into our characters, whether it's like, the shadow parts of ourselves that we can never be in our regular lives or our power fantasy versions of ourselves or like things that we never got to complete when we were like teenagers. And now we can be that full on edgelord <laughs> or be like the the pretty popular one um, or all of those kinds of things, if that makes sense. It does. And uh, I think everything you've said really adds an air of gravitas to the act of role playing in RPGs that uh, maybe our podcast has has <laughs> maybe has been absent from our podcast because uh, man, I'm usually just like you know like I I once ran a, a game where the players had to get this magical object for a local king and then it turned out to just be a can of his favorite raspberry lemonade. You know, it, it doesn't quite, the games well, that I run great, don't quite though. translate to the degree of introspection that you're talking about, but I don't know, maybe they should. I I mean, but also even, I mean, that's, okay, first of all, that's just my weird little brain. I would love to have been a player where we were doing a fetch quest for a king and we thought it was super serious and it's like a can of some favorite food because it also like teaches people about like subverting expectations in life and being True. like, Oh yeah, you think something is really serious in your life and it might not actually be serious or something that isn't serious to you can be so serious to someone else and to learn how to like manage that as a group, you know, mm -hmm. there's like all these little lessons, no matter how ridiculous the scenario is, because it's always going to be based on something in quote unquote real life out of game. Like none of this like spontaneously arises from nothingness. That's um, true. Except for maybe like 
you know, Tom's true <laughs> characters, the abrasive nothingness. But <laughs> oh god, I love that goblin sound bite you always do. It's so it's so <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Keeping the spirit of the show. Excellent, know. excellent. But yeah, so it doesn't like nobody has to be to bring that gravitas into their game playing. I just want to offer that experience where people are looking for a, a very obvious way to connect it to their life. Then I want to offer that as something to be like, yeah, let's look at the underpinnings and the game theory of why we do this and why gaming is really healing. Also, because like. I'm still that angry 13-year-old nerd that's like, why are people making fun of me? Because I'm a gamer. This is like, this is the best thing in the fucking world. And I'll never let that go. And anyone who thinks that it's like cringe or trivial or annoying, I'm like, we're able to completely grow as people in just by sitting around and talking with each other and not having hmm. to push ourselves into these situations that might traumatize us and have to spend years of therapy to undo when we can just role play it with a bunch of friends that we like <laughs> while eating some snacks like this is it's it's magic it really is it, it absolutely is and I, I don't know if i i mean i've probably talked about it on this show at some point but uh if i haven't i could at least reiterate it i have definitely had the experience where you know, I've run entire campaigns for my friends, and then years later, we'll talk about them, and they'll all start going like, oh yeah, and remember when that happened, remember when that happened, and at some point during those discussions, someone clues in and goes like, but none of that happened. We're, we're talking about these things that happened all in our heads, but we all remember them, and there's, there is a magic to that, where it's like, yeah, it is like we lived that in my living room with, uh, you know, a bowl of Cheetos. How does that happen? It is pretty fascinating, I have to say. I I think with the gates, I really wanted to point to the fact that role-playing games are the descendants of, <laughs> this sounds so woo-woo, but I love it, of like ancient spirit work or what people nowadays in North America call shamanic rituals, where there's one dude in your village and he's like, things are bad. We all know that the crops are not working. Some of our cattle have died. So we're going to figure out how to do this together and then puts everybody in a collective trance and they and then he describes through a spirit journey um like okay and now I'm going into the upper world and I'm taking you all with me and there is like a dragon spirit and I'm fighting it and he's like acting it out and hissing and you could see the dragon in him and then he's fighting it and he's like I've overcome it but there's another spirit that's plaguing our cattle and he goes through the whole story with the whole village there in the ceremony and that helps them deal with what's happening currently um, with forces that seem beyond their control. And so, like, from that simple act of this ceremony, I feel like Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> is the descendant of that, of how, and that we could do that, and none of us have to be, like, the special priest of our village anymore. We could just be like, that guy knows how to write stuff and remembers the rules. You'll be our special priest to run us through this magical ceremony so that we can deal with stuff. Does that, that's, I mean, that's a part of like, part of the gates is to call back to that history as well. And that 
even in our own ancestry, even inside our minds is like a literal whole world and campaign setting that we can use. I love that perspective on it. Yeah, that's really, I really like that. Thanks. <laughs> it's nice to like, <laughs> it's nice to be asked about a game that I like created, I think pre like a year or two before the pandemic. And then I only played one campaign of this and then the pandemic hit real hard. And then I never got to play another campaign with folks again. And then being like, wow, why did I make this? Do, do people care? Is this a really weird thing that I've launched into the world? So it's nice to be asked about it by people that have no investment in me as a person <laughs> and just like likes to look at games. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, I, as I said before, it really stood out to me as we were going through the rules and had me going like, but this isn't this isn't what I've encountered before. Even in something like Nobilis, I feel like like the, the Nobilis isn't asking as much of you, the person playing. You know, Nobilis is asking you to imagine these ideas and put together all of these things, but the Gates is actually like pointing its finger at me, McGill, and saying, you, McGill, you're in this game. And making me go like, oh man, okay, I guess I am. I got to think about this. Um, so I did want to ask, uh, you had just said you designed it about a year before the pandemic, so like sometime in 2019, right? Um, and you only got a chance to sort of run one campaign? Yeah. Uh, have you heard from anyone playing this independently of like your social circle uh are, are tom and i the first people to go like oh hey the gates <laughs> uh without I, I though i guess i guess tom did did hear about it from you so maybe my uh maybe i'm, I'm i've got it wrong there too i don't think i've heard anybody trying to play this beyond the one campaign that i ran to, to be honest, I've like shared it with people who are interested in being like, yeah, you make games. And I'm like, yeah, this was the first one I made. I'm working on Hawak, which is like very similar, but easier than the gates. Like it's made for people who have never played games before. Um, and it takes um, like pain or stuff in your body and makes a whole campaign setting out of the stuff that's going on in your body. So still doing that weird meta shit that I love so much. Um, yeah. And then like you, you have more than one character. It's almost like a card game where you, you make a deck of champions to deal with the mysteries that are happening. So you make a setting that's based on your whole body. Um, so there'll be like the forest of, I don't know, snakes is actually based on your hair or whatever. So you make a map of that and then, all the weird things, plot points are based on things that are going on, like your creaking knees or like the wailing hills of Agonosh or something. And then you make a series of characters. Um, and um, those characters then are chosen as like, okay, who's, who's going to be dealing with this issue? So you can play it as one person or you can play it as a group. And there's like more mechanics about how um, it works better and the, and the math of the game to be in a group because um, I'm always sneaking in that like community token group collaborative stuff. But I find that like, even to folks who are 
um, seasoned gamers, when they see something like the gates, it's, I think, overwhelming to them <laughs> to be like, I don't know if I have the chops to run this or if I am emotionally able to do this because I would have to reflect on things about myself and my life that I'm not ready to do or I need someone to walk me through it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say uh, I was overwhelmed or intimidated approaching it, but just it, all those immediate differences from the other RPGs we talked about really stuck out to me. And uh, still, frankly, I find very interesting. Like, I'd love to actually see like a, an actual play video of people playing the gates just to observe the game in action. I find that's sort of often the case with me when I when I take on a new RPG, I always find myself going like, okay, but I want to like see this in action and see how it really plays out. Yeah. Um, one question that we had that I want to cover, is it the Operimus <laughs> or the Oprimus? Yes. What happened? So you? I took two years of Latin in, <laughs> in university. And what I learned is that nobody knows how Latin actually sounds and you just got to wing it because it's a dead language. And so... So I said Opera. Yeah, you could say, I've said Opramus, you know, I guess if you were going to say it in an Italian accent, it would be Oprimus, you know? Um, but it's, it could be, I mean, Oprimus, you know, I like Primus too as a band, so it could be anything. <laughs> like, you, you don't have to... <laughs> it doesn't matter the idea is i chose a latin word as a placeholder for like how do we make the bad things that have happened to you into physical um into like an actual metaphor of an enemy that you can figure out solutions around as opposed to the overwhelming thing about like I'm about to lose my housing because they won't give me a place to stay because I am trans. Now we translate that into a literal enemy <laughs> and see how that goes. Man, that sounds like a tough enemy. Though. <laughs> um, I like one of my questions was really about uh, sort of the limits of defining your character in terms of your upper soul and under soul. Um, I believe my idea was that my ancestral self would be a self that's made of all the screw ups in my family <laughs> yeah. tree. So all the addicts and all the suicides and et cetera. And then meanwhile, my reincarnation, my past lives is just be a bug, a bat, a bug, a bug, a reptile, a bug. I'm just going through sequentially here. I think it's. I'm curious. How wacky can you get with that stuff? I mean, it says in the thing that you can be uh, something. Oh, man. Now, now I wish I had it in front of me. But it was like um, you can be something from worlds that are not your own or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, you could have been your upper soul absolutely can be a bug person, like a giant bug tree person. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. The ancestry thing would be tricky. So if you were like, I want all the fuck ups, then I'll be like, consider that the things that have fucked over your ancestors and not necessarily their own decisions, we can turn them into opermists. So what is it about them yeah. that resides outside of their addictions or outside of their violence? Yeah. Haunted upper soul. I'd be, <laughs> your, 
I think we're talking about the undersoul, but yeah, it, or the undersoul. I was like, sorry. then I'm like, maybe the resounding characteristic is how they survived or how, and being like, so what would that ultimate survivor look like despite addiction or despite famine or despite like so much violence around them? So I would kind of like coach it that way being like, um, I don't, if you wanted to, like, yeah, that we have all ancestors. I have ancestors that were like slave taking pirates, uh, in, in the Pacific. So I'm like, I wouldn't necessarily, <laughs> I would still have an ancestor undersoul that would be a seafaring badass with like a giant curved sword, but necessarily the impetus to take slaves would not add it to that character would probably be like, this is the internal conflict that can be seen as an opromise that's constantly seducing them to like, yeah, I, I guess my question then is that like, is it then that that care, like, would you then kind of bring on the haunting aspect of the opromise that like is associated with that character is like not as an aspect of your character, but would then by taking on that character, would you then not, or sorry, I'm screwing up my words here. If you if you take on that part of your ancestry, do you then have to face that opera miss that they face? Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, see, I like that idea. And like the thing about so I there was like so many <laughs> I know that McGill didn't get to, but there's like three types of quests. You know, there's like vendetta we had like yeah. just gotten yeah, to that we have, haven't even covered all, all of it at this point the vendettas the tyrannies and the curses and so what um what we ended up doing the campaign which i thought would be a really great way to ease people into it is we start with curses and so we go from i chose like each session would be one player's curse that everybody would work on and then the next session so it also like went deep into their backstory to figure it out and then once everyone's curses were like resolved or at least initiated and started with then you find out that a lot of these curses are interconnected to a larger opera miss that was controlling these minor players and then it gets into like a vendetta and so it is it's layered in the way that if you read the city of mist books around how they make mysteries that are deeply interconnected and they walk you through like um the the deeper layers of how you of how you build a campaign on like convoluted interconnected mysteries um it's that way so like we would focus on like one session or maybe multiple depending on how deep the story goes in regards to like this opromis that keeps haunting you and so like the session would wake up being like like everybody wakes up in the in the headquarters or the center and it's like okay another day in the spirit lands and they look over to your character and you're just covered in like i don't know vines that are coming out of your eyeballs and like something is pulling you into like a deep cave and they're like oh shit and then they run after you um and they start to learn more about this thing that has been haunting your undersoul and like generations of your family <laughs> this all sounds exciting i like it um we've been going for a little over yeah. an hour now i don't want to keep you too long uh do you want to wrap up for today's guest spot sure i know i do know that um I just want to respond to any of McGill's questions around like um, tokens or 
if there was like a specific question around some of the mechanics? Not really. And in okay. fact, uh, what you've said actually has reassured me a lot because it seems like the underlying message to all this is just like, don't be afraid to dive in and try it out and, you know, I guess, treat it as seriously as you're comfortable treating it. Because, you know, in reading those rules, I was going like, okay, but like, you know, am I really supposed to do this? And from everything you've said, you've, you've given me a lot of reassurance to just be like, just like dive in, give it a shot. If you're not comfortable with that, you don't have to approach it from that way. But it also sounds like a lot of my interpretation of it was not far off from your intention. So absolutely. That's great. Um, and I think I think the main thing is if people want to be a guide, just remember the five responsibilities about taking care of each other. Um, also, because like. Um, and I also mentioned really quickly, like maybe the guy should have, you know, some peer support skills, some emotional first aid. Like if this, if people, it depends on your players. So if they go really deep into like undersoul stuff and like things that have been haunting their family for generations and they start to have a breakdown at the table and the other players don't know what to do, it might be the guy's responsibility to be like, okay, let's pause um, we talked about this before we started. We're going to bring you to the center that we all created, which is a comforting place or to your center. But we're also going to bring real life blankets and maybe some snacks. You could just lie down and then we can all just chill to music and just hang out and pause the session for today. Like there's still like I I also just want to emphasize that this could be as fun as you want it to be but also if players go hard into it because it is looking at their own stuff so just be careful around that and be caring about that and to have like maybe a little bit of skills around um not being afraid of emotional outbursts and like supporting people through that or being like all right we have a list of crisis lines and we also <laughs> have emergency blankets and we have some stuffed toys and we have anything that's needed if you just need to rest from some huge revelation that you just had about your father <laughs> that just came up right now because of the campaign. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that's also one of the reasons why people are hesitant around jumping into it is like, how deep do I have to go? What if I go too deep? Do I have the supports in my life? Um, like I was what will I discover yeah. within myself? I love hearing that Tom's therapist likes Magnus Archives game. And I was like, that's a therapist that definitely, if you go deep in this game, you can talk to that person about 100%. <laughs> you got that support there, you know? So, and it's like, I'm hesitant for people that are like, they use games as fully an escape, but don't have supports in their life for other things to to jump into this without having those supports. And, oh, well, yeah, go ahead. Um, oh, sorry. Miguel? I was just going to say, and can you, can you remind us again uh, what your next game is so we can at least keep an eye out for it? Yeah, I haven't written it out yet because I was just like beta testing it at this um, at this land cooperative um, that I am a part of out in like the wilds of Quebec um, by this lake and this farm. So 
is called Hawak, H-A-W-A-K, which is a Tagalog or Bicol word. There's, there are two different dialects from the Philippines. Um, and it means both the stalk of a plant and the torso of a human being and also to like hold things or or use things with your hands. So it's like multiple meanings to kind of encapsulate how this game is a lot about like connecting to the land around you, connecting to your body, understanding like how pain in your body or things happening in your body can be a wisdom teacher and to understand how that like also works in the landscape and also works in like the imagination of creating a whole campaign setting based on what's going on in your body and plot points that's going on in your body. Um, and then how to pull people into that world. So it is, there's a, there's a huge element of making cards and making maps. So when I ran the retreat, um, in September 2nd and 3rd, um, a large portion of it was like, I brought a lot of arts and crafts supplies. And then I also taught people what role-playing games are because many of the people who attended were looking for a healing experience or like connecting with nature had never played role-playing games ever in their life. And so part of it, I told them about like the game theory and dice and working with chance um, as a way to build trauma resilience. But I also gave them this activity um, which is great if you ever have new players that have never, who are just interested in your story and have never tried gaming before. So I put them in groups and I said, one of you is a storyteller and one of you is a player and you have a 20 sided dice. And the person who's a storyteller will tell a story from their own life, but use second person pronouns. So instead of them saying, I go to this coffee shop, I met this cute barista, I really like her. You go, you went to this coffee shop, you meet this cute barista, you really like her, you ask her out, now roll a d20 to see how it goes. And then they just role play crucial parts of their own story, and they start to learn what it means or in regards to just like the basics of um, playing with chance and combining that in storytelling and how that's role playing. And then we start building characters after that, but it's just like getting that that skill around like combining numbers and dice with a story, I think was a really key part of the retreat and of what we as gamers have been gaming since we were teens take for granted because that's like <laughs> roll initiative, you know, do perception check, all of that just seems normal. Um, but for people that aren't us where this is new to them, they are like, what? And it's like life changing. You can see how for some people they were like, I had this really terrible thing happen to me last summer and I replayed it. And it was great to see people roll high and that their parents supported them and they got the apartment that they wanted and they got the job they wanted. And it was really weirdly, I wasn't jealous. I was happy. And I was like, okay. So that's Hawak is like, it's more than just the game, but building the skills to play the game as well. And so and then folks who were participated wanted to make it into a larger LARP. And I was like, all right, well, that means we need more <laughs> volunteers and more staff because I cannot run a, a huge fucking LARP on these game mechanics by myself out in the country. Um, so 
we're hoping to start a collective. Um, there's a couple of storytellers that um, are seasoned, like professional DMs who had attended that were interested in like making it into a bigger thing because they really enjoyed the aspect of like creating the cards, but also um, being out in nature and LARPing there and also like using there. It has a more separation than the gates where the gates is like using stories from your own ancestry or from your own life. And this and Hawak is like, you can even separate it further into metaphor where it's like, okay, the pain in your knee is now this whole story about like these dragons fighting under a hill. So it's, there's a, a deeper sense of removal from it so that people can get more immersed and there's less chance of like, did we trigger somebody's trauma and now we have to pause and like do support work. Well, it sounds really cool. And when it's out of its infancy, we should talk about Hawak on this show. Awesome. Yeah. This is very exciting to me. Thank you. Uh, especially <laughs> because I love games involving decks of cards and maps, too. I had an idea, which was uh, we recently covered Wicked Ones, the Forge of the Dark game. Yeah. It'd be cool to do Wicked Ones Hawak as you uh, build a map of your body, and then you set up a little dungeon somewhere and harass all the other nearby areas. <laughs> I really, I'm not familiar with Forge in the Dark until you introduced it to me, Tom. So I'm like, I got to really read up on this like gaming system because it is new to me, but very it's exciting. Very versatile. Uh, it really, and very uh, story focused in my experience. I will happily say that Blades in the Dark is like the, has a free SRD. Mm -hmm. So you can look that up online and that's sort of the, the heart of it, where all of it comes from. But, uh, yeah, I was just, uh, I really liked the, the, when we got to talking about Hawak, it got me picturing one of those region maps that they have for Wicked Ones, and I was like, oh, I'd like to make a little goblin dungeon in there, in that body, and they'll <laughs> go harass my ear or something for resources. <laughs> and, you could absolutely um, do that in that game, yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you having me here to ask me questions. Thanks so much. Um... And yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed listening to the episode about the game and, um, I'd love to, um, chat on the podcast about other stuff in the future. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think me. we'd love to have you. It'd be great. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and giving us a new perspective on it and answering my questions about the gates. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, bye. Yeah. Thanks so much. So thanks again to Lukio for joining us and talking about the gates. I mean, as I was saying uh, during the discussion, Tom, I feel so reassured that like I wasn't way off the mark on so many of my assumptions. That's great. Um, beyond talking about the gates, the only other thing I wanted to mention on this episode was to give another game review. I feel like I'm... Uh, uh, I'm giving a lot of free advertising to this website uh, lately, but they've just they've been so good. It's another game from thegamecrafter.com. Uh, my lovely wife, Caitlin, surprised me with another one of their mint tin games, the little card and dice games that fit in your pocket. Uh, this is another one designed by Jason Glover, who did Dust Runner that I really enjoyed. And this one uh, is probably his best known one called Tin Helm. 
and the idea behind Tin Helm. It's another solo keep it in your pocket game that comes in a tin that is like a little Altoid sized tin. And it's uh, it's much more straight up than Dust Runner or Doom Machine because it's just it's a pocket dungeon quest. It's a dungeon crawl in your pocket. Um, and in this case, here let me give you a let me give you a link so that you can see what I'm talking about. But yeah, more uh, more from the Game Crafter. More from the Game Crafter, and. Uh, you can see that this one shares a few aspects with Dust Runner. Like uh, in Dust Runner, you have three cards that have uh, they're they're like double sided, and each side has different characteristics and stats. And so you design your car in Dust Runner by flipping the three cards to whatever stats you want, and you know different sides of the cards give different abilities. And in the case of Tin Helm, there are four cards that you use to make your character, and on one side of each card is a race, and the races have a special ability, starting health, starting energy, and starting food. And then on the other side of the cards are classes. The classes have... Uh, special attacks that you can spend energy to use. Uh, they give you more energy and health depending on what you pick. And each class also comes with two starting items, uh, like the Marauder is an axe and a bedroll, um, and uh, the Parson is a mason, a scroll, things like that. And so the first part of the game is that you build your character by choosing two cards, one for the race and one for the class. And uh, part of what I think is interesting about this design, some thought must have gone into this, where, like the, you know, like the, for example, there's the, the card for the human, the race is human, and on the back of that card is the alchemist class. But that means that humans can never be alchemists. And I'd be curious to know uh, how Jason Glover, like, went about deciding which class would be restricted for each race. I'm sure there's some thought put behind it. But so you create your character using two cards. You, uh, there are cards that track your health and your energy and your food and your favor. And then there's also uh, a card to track what level of the dungeon you're in and enemy health whenever you fight an enemy. Um, health is self-explanatory. Energy, uh, it's sort of like mana, and the idea behind it is that you can spend energy to basically add a bonus amount of damage to your attack rolls. Uh, so you can see on the class side of those cards, there's like a little three-framed, uh, three I don't know what you call it, thing, a little graphic with three frames, and in each frame is a number and then a number of lightning bolts next to it. And that basically means that, for example, like if you are a marauder, you can spend one energy before you roll your dice in combat to add three additional damage when you hit. Or you can spend two energy and do six additional damage. So that's how energy works. It's used uh, to activate those extra damage abilities in combat. And then there are also, you know, little things that come up on the encounter cards that might uh, require your energy. Food, uh, food you can cash one food in to gain either one energy or one health, but the main thing about it is that each time uh, you, there, there's a deck of cards that are different rooms in the dungeon, 
and each level of the dungeon, uh, you finish a level of the dungeon when you go through the whole map deck once. And uh, ultimately it means that I think it's 12 rooms uh, per level of the dungeon. So once you go through the full, uh, the full map deck, uh, that means you've reached the end of that dungeon level and you have to consume food or you lose health. So that's like the main function of food is that uh, at, at the end of each level, you got to make sure to have some banked away or you take damage. Favor is really just points that you tally up at the end of the game to see how well you did. Uh, and then, yeah, the, as I mentioned, the other tracking card tracks enemy health when you're in combat and also tracks what level of the dungeon you're on. And the objective of this game, now that you sort of have the idea that you're going through a dungeon, you got loot, you got enemies, there are different levels, is you are looking for three magical shards. You have to collect the three shards to win the game. And the shards are gotten through different encounters. One of my favorite things is... Uh, there's there's like a random encounter option. I should actually, I'll just explain it through how the uh, the cards work. You can see like a little ways down the page on the Game Crafter for Tin, Tin Helm, you can see a guy flipping over map cards. And the idea is that you look at the, when it's, when you're going to tackle a room, you look at the top card of the map deck and you decide either you want to take on that room or you want to go for the one below it. But either way, you wind up drawing a map card and then flipping over another map card and matching up the symbols on it. And you can see in the example, uh, he, draw, he wants to encounter the catacombs room. The catacombs room has a little skull icon and a question mark. So when he flips over the following map card, there's a little legend on the back and it says, oh, the skull means you encounter an enemy called the doom skull. And the question mark means that you get to encounter a secret area called the Grove. And the Grove just means that you roll a die, and if you roll high enough, you get extra food. Um, and, uh, and so you proceed through the dungeon just doing this loop, where you decide if you want to encounter the top card or the one below it. You use whichever card you're not encountering as a legend to determine what the encounter is in the room. Sometimes there are traps, sometimes there are loot. Um, yeah, you can see uh, a little ways down. There's another example where he encounters the statue room and first hits a trap that does two damage and then finds a potion uh, piece of loot. So you go through that cycle of encountering rooms, having those encounters, fighting enemies, uh, and eventually, depending on the enemies you fight and the random encounters that you have, you will acquire these shards. Like there's an enemy, a very high level enemy called the Possessor, where if you beat the Possessor, you get a shard. And what I was going to say is my favorite thing in this game is uh, one item of loot that it's possible to acquire is a turnip. And uh, the turnip can, you know, function as, as food, but... The alternative use of the turnip is if you have the random encounter where you meet the pigman. Like the pigman is one of the yeah, question mark icons. I saw the pigman. I was like, hell yeah, I like this guy. Yeah, when you encounter the pigman, that means uh, if you have the turnip, you can trade the turnip to him for a shard. So that's a, I just I love that little thing where it's like if I have this funny piece of loot and I have this funny random encounter, I can I can get a part of the game winning condition out of that. 
There are campsites where you gain, uh, you regain health and energy. Uh, there are, they're just called like water, water encounters. I guess it's like a puddle, a river or whatever, but that's another case where you roll 1d6 and if you get a five or a six, you gain one food. And then the, uh, the actual encounters, the enemies that you spend a lot of time fighting, he doesn't have a really good picture one. Let me just find uh, a picture of an enemy card on here. So there's the, there's the 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 playing board. You can see it being laid out. Yeah, there's the pigman down there, um, and you see in the the top there uh, is what I think would probably be your favorite of the, the available enemies, the skelepede, which looks great. I love the graphic on it. Um, when you encounter an enemy, first you add its health total on its card to the dungeon level you're on. And that is the enemy's health. So uh, enemies have more health the deeper into the dungeon you go. And I should also say you don't have to get to level 5 to win. The objective is to get all three shards. But if you make it to level 5 and you beat... Uh, like you go through the entire map deck and you don't have the shards, you lose. So uh, you don't have to go through all five levels. Um, you draw an enemy, you add their health total on the card to the dungeon level you're on, and then take note of any special abilities they have. So Skelepedes, uh if they roll doubles, they re-roll them. The rule is that if you roll doubles, you miss. It's a miss. Um, and then when you fight... First, you declare if you want to use uh, one of your energy abilities in the, uh, the graphic I just sent you, in the photo I just sent you. This person's playing as a human footpad, so you can see that uh, they can use energy to add 2, 5, or 7 to their attack rolls. Determine if you want to add any damage via your energy. Then you roll 2d6, and you subtract the lower number from the higher number, and whatever is left that's the amount of damage that you do, plus whatever you may have added using energy. Then you take note on the enemy card. You can see there's a little shield icon. The Skelepede has a defense of one, so that means that you got to subtract one from your damage roll. If I had rolled, you know, if I was doing four damage, well, the Skelepede blocks one, so I only do three damage. Uh, the little Onk icon indicates how much favor you gain from beating it. And uh, the little dagger icon, the Skelepede has a zero next to it, but that is any damage, you know, when the Skelepede goes, if you don't kill the enemy on, on your first go, the enemy rolls 2d6, once again subtracts the lower from the higher, and does the difference in damage to you, and if they have any numbers next to the little dagger icon, they add that much damage on as well. And that's the game, like it, it, once... I like got into it once I played it once. Uh, it flows very quickly. It's really intuitive and it's really fun. I love that you construct a dungeon of rooms. You can see how they're all laid out and connected. So you, you build the dungeon, you have these encounters, the enemies are all really fun. There are a few little surprises and uh, a lot of options too in terms of what character you play. Uh, so far I have only played I played as a human person, and I played as a crawling marauder, and the crawlings are, uh, they're basically Kenku, they're bird people. Ah. And it's super fun. 
So uh, another big recommendation to these these solo mint tin games, uh, and another another big ups to uh, to Jason Glover for another one he designed. But I'm loving these. I'm amassing a small collection of them, and they're just so great. Like I know I've said it before, but if I'm rendering a video or if I'm waiting for a download or an installation to finish on my computer, just pop open one of these, play a quick you know 20 to 30 minute game while everything finishes. Great way to fill the time and great for travel as well. So another recommendation for the mint tin games of thegamecrafter.com. Hell yeah. Yeah, they've been getting big ups from us. It's great stuff. Super fun. Uh, I have yet to play one where I'm like, eh, it's not great. Well, I think that between our interview with Lukayo and uh, our... Uh, Talking about this, uh, Tin Helm. Tin Helm. I think apart from that, uh, that's that's about all we got time for this episode. So if you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. And if you want to see our show notes with supplemental materials, check us out on uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Is that right? Sure is. Uh, don't trust a hairless white guide if he talks all evil. Stick to a cool guide that knows what they're doing. And Get your ding, whether it's leveling up or defeating a monster in a dungeon or what. Yeah, man, heal after that trauma. Definitely heal. Take care, everybody. <laughs>